what I get very excited about is this future state where the next great Nike is community founded, community led and community owned. So there's very much a distributed ownership where like hundreds of thousands of people are on the cap table versus whatever, 20. My belief on brand building or the future of brand building is two part. It's co-creation. So empowering these people that we're talking about, the loyal fans to come upstream and, and help you kind of influence and shape the future of the brand tied to incentivization. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. Today, we're talking about incentivizing iPhone users and creating brand loyalty. For me, the only way is with a great mobile app. And I love how Tapcart is doing that by making customer digital experience so slick. Visit tapcart.com forward slash limited and build your mobile app in weeks with two months free. All right, Moise, season three, we're back. I can't believe it. It's been a while. We didn't take a few weeks off between the first season and the second season. So this was our summer vacation right here. Yeah. Well, winter vacation, but it was short. I think it was like two weeks. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But I'm excited about season three. We're changing up a few things. We're having some more guests on. We've asked for a a lot of feedback about the podcast and what people like and what they don't like. Yeah. Shout out to everybody on Twitter who threw some feedback over. Yeah, that was fantastic. Really appreciate it. Uh, One point of feedback I've actually realized that we don't do is we should ask people to follow us either via Twitter or, you know, just uh, following our podcast on YouTube or whatever it is, wherever you're listening, so that you get up to date episodes. Uh, But in any case, all of that aside, we're dropping the first episode of season three today. Nick, uh, you got this guest. Tell Tell us a little about her. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you know I'm a huge proponent of cold emailing. Uh, a few months ago, I was in Austin and tried to put a dinner together with just a bunch of cool people. I cold emailed Tyler Haney, the founder of Outdoor Voices, and I said, uh, hey, you have no idea who I am, but you know I'm kind of a fan and I would love to invite you to this dinner I'm hosting tonight. It's in Austin. Uh, you know, Let me know if you're able to make it. And she said, I'm not in Austin anymore, but you know, next time I'm in New York, we'll hang out. So a few weeks later, I get an email that she's coming to New York. We meet up at uh, a hotel, chit chat for probably an hour. And then, uh, you know, she has to go take an investor call. And then, you know, a few weeks after that, I met up with her again, or I think we had zoomed. And then, you know, a couple of weeks ago, recently, uh, we were both at the Juneshine tasting room launch in Williamsburg. So we met up there again, and that's kind of where I was like, hey, you should come on the limited supply. You know, we have this very different take to how your podcast you've probably done before. Moise and I are huge fans of, of Outdoor Voices. Come tell us the story. And so we got really lucky. She was down to do it. And that's what brought us here to today. Just for transparency's sake, we're recording this intro post shooting the interview, and it is awesome. She's incredibly honest and blunt about what worked really well and what didn't work really well at uh, OV and like what she's super proud of and mistakes that she made. I love talking to founders like this who are like, you know, a little bit divorced from their brand because like, you know, she's had a couple of years away from OV. And so she has the perspective of like what worked and what didn't work, uh, the memory of what worked and what didn't work, and the ability to talk about it honestly and not just give us PR bullshit. And so uh, I'm really excited for everyone to listen to this episode. I've been a huge fan of Ty for a long time. In fact, uh, during the COVID, I didn't mention this during the podcast, Nick, 
she and I connected via email and we were supposed to have a call and she did not join the call. And then I emailed her and I've got this. I said, Hey, I tried, uh, I says, Hey Ty, I tried giving you a call a few minutes ago. Is it best to reschedule something? If not, I'll try giving you a call sometime this week. She never responded after this. We were supposed to have a call. She missed it. I followed up. She never responded to me again. And I, I knew this happened, but I didn't bring it up. But like, uh, you know, I, I, I'm so humble. A, a real fanboy moment for me. I think she built an incredible brand. I love Outdoor Voices. I wear them all the time. Uh, and you just get a very honest take of what, what happened at the company. Uh, so excited for all of you to listen. Yeah, I think my favorite part... One was that I feel like this was kind of a, a mini masterclass on launching an apparel brand. I think apparel is probably, you know, apparel, scent, and beverage are probably some of the hardest categories, especially with apparel. It's like you're either, your brand either hits or it flops. And even when it does hit, that hit lasts half a quarter before you have to keep pumping new products out. So I think it was awesome to hear that perspective, as well as, you know, I think a buzzword that gets thrown out a ton and thrown around a lot. Honestly, truly, because she probably started it back then, was is the word community, and she really explained the depth of that and what that means around building brand advocacy. And you know, it's not just like you know. To me, when I hired a community manager at Hint, that person's sole job was responding to comments in in ads. You talk to a different person who runs community, and their role is like you know hosting events at some place or you know turning their office into something else, whatever it is. But uh, getting her perspective on community, you know, as kind of the the godmother of community in this direct consumer era, I think was also really fascinating. To the point where she truly felt it was a, it's up there with Facebook ads and storefronts as, as like a an expansion and a growth strategy. So I thought that was awesome. Yeah, that's true. Uh, community today, like community manager is a euphemism for you will respond to Facebook comments and delete Facebook <laughs> yeah. comments and hide and ban people from Facebook and hide Facebook comments. And yeah. that's it. Like you should know how to ban and hide. You need to know what those two words mean. Ban and uh, then delete. Yeah, yeah. But now, um, yeah, this is the first instance where I've, I've, I've talked to someone who a community meant something beyond digital community. It meant in, in real life community. Anyway, Let's get to the episode. Let's talk to her because she was fucking awesome. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, leave a review, and we'll see you at the end of the episode. I'm like uh, super excited to meet you. I've got a fanboy moment right now. I've been a huge fan of Outdoor Voices for like eight years or something like that. Believe it or not, one of the guys that I worked with at my first startup in 2013 introduced me to the brand. He's like, I just saw this at J. Crew, and it's awesome. And I was like what's awesome about it. And then I bought whatever I'm wearing now. Uh, and I was like, this is the greatest thing in the history of the world. Uh, I wear it on dates. I wear it uh, to go to bed. Like you can wear it everywhere I go. Everywhere I go, I can wear this, whatever this is called. I think it's called like the compression uh, top or something for men. It's on the bestseller thing. And uh, unfortunately, I've had to size up. So I've had to buy 15 twice. I had to go from small to medium. But uh, I'm a huge fan and, you know, uh, I followed Outdoor Voices, I guess, since since 2014. I followed the growth of it and sort of when you left back in 2020, I think it was. Uh, excited about this opportunity to both talk about your reign and sort of how you made it such an incredible brand and to set the record straight about anything that's happened and what you're up to today. You know, I'm not sure what happened in 2020 or maybe it was 2019, but it felt like a lot of women in the direct-to-consumer space were not being treated very well 
in the media. Like I remember in our articles about outdoor voices. I remember articles about Glossier. I remember articles about Away. And in a way, like the Away travel, like, you know, they, they found some screenshot in Slack where I think Steph Corey wrote, the logistics company I'm working with is brain dead. And people were like, can you believe that they call them brain dead? And I was like, yeah, I've worked with them. Brain dead is the nicest thing you could possibly say about that. It's a very PG way to say it. They're fucking terrible. They're (laughs) fucking terrible is more accurate way to say it. And people were like, oh, she called them brain dead. I was like, you guys are upset that she called her brain dead. Check out the slacks that I've written where I'm like, fuck these motherfuckers. Uh, And so I was like, what's going on here? Uh, so I'm excited to talk and sort of get the real experience or like get your understanding of what happened now to our voices. I've read all the articles that you've been a part of, listened to a bunch of the podcasts. Um, I guess before we start, in one of the podcasts you were talking with A-Rod and you're like, you know, Whitney from Bumble lives in Austin. And I think at the time you were living in Austin and you guys had gotten to know each other. Is there a female founders crew that is going on on the DL? Is there a female founders mafia? <laughs> We're, we're all friends. Um, yeah, we do have a group chat. And I had moved Outdoor Voices from New York to Austin and pleasantly surprised that Whitney was there. So we became even better friends. But yeah, I mean, just the nature of us being, you know, direct-to-consumer female founders, like we're very friendly with one another. And and that time in particular was challenging. It's It's kind of funny to hear your take on it. But I'm like, if only... The reader knew that every single day a business like this has like a list of 10 to 100 challenges that, you know, you could take and screenshot and be like, so normalizing challenges at a business for a growing company is like something that I think about all the time, but excited to dig in and been really pumped to be here, guys. It's also just normalizing that things are hard. There's this notion that everything should just be smooth sailing, rainbows and butterflies, and that, you know, altercations shouldn't occur. People shouldn't challenge other people's thinking. And I think those are all the things that make the great companies. Like when you think about the greatest companies being built, it's just a combination of so much of that. But to start out with the the female founder crew. So like there was like you, there was Katrina, there was Emily, there was Danielle and Carly, uh, there was Steph and Jen. You know, you guys not only had just businesses that were new and, and doing well at the time. But the the public persona, I feel like fueled so much, a lot of positive, I think maybe a little bit negative too in the press when they were just attacking it. But on the way up, it seems like it was super helpful. Is there anything that you saw that was particularly helpful then that you would advise to like founders even now who are building companies in terms of the benefits of building a personal brand around it or having a following or being able to do things in that world? Out of the gates, we were super ambitious. Our our goal was to build the next Nike, but not focused on crossing the finish line first, rather the opposite of that. So how do we build a brand that frees fitness from performance and prioritizes daily activity? And so out of the gates, that also was tied. The opportunity was to like really position this as a female-founded-led brand. And I mean, 50% of the population is female. So that visual tied to that mission really resonated. And it gave us kind of ammunition and power to like have that ambition and and get people to buy into it and and participate in it. And so, hell yeah, like that was a huge kind of advantage and part of the narrative out of the gates. And it only became an issue, you know, eight years later when that became our Achilles heel or what people wanted to target. So if you looked at the traditional kind of activewear brands in the space, Under Armour, Nike, Lululemon, like loved them, wore them, et cetera. They were all male founded. And so to be Outdoor Voices with this female founder, 
this different mission, this different way of building and this more inclusive, approachable, accessible call to action to participate in activity where it didn't look and feel like, you know, I had to have the biggest muscles at the gym. Like that as a package became a very compelling selling point. So one thing you mentioned about the muscles, you mentioned uh, somewhere that not only like the the gaps for those muscles to be filled in the existing clothing you were wearing was kind of uncomfortable, but also was the like the neon and the the fabric that they were using. And so you decided to go and make kind of this matte clothing fabric. And so two questions there. One is, you know, your parents were in the garment business and, you know, did that impact your choice to go with the matte fabric? And the second one is, you know, how are you so convinced that Nike wouldn't just the next day say, oh, there's a small, you know, percentage growing of matte and different type of materials. We can just drop a product. So like when, you know, when LaCroix was getting really big, Pepsi said, we're just going to put bubbly in the market. We're going to undercut LaCroix's price and that'll just kill that business. We don't have to worry about that problem and we can take a loss on bubbly. But how, like, how did you think through both the matte and then the competition with it? I had grown up with a mom and aunt. So they're twins that are like very color and design inclined. And so they, they were in the apparel business and I told myself, I'll never do that. Like having physical inventory is like a total shit show. But I always paid attention to the color of someone's lipstick and, and really was drawn to kind of the design of things and ended up going to Parsons in the city. Um, and when I looked at kind of the traditional activewear space, the aesthetic was this overly macho, shiny black spandex, like perforations on my side that like make me look like a superhuman. And I was like, damn, like I'm active on a daily basis, not trying to win the race necessarily. I want I want a uniform for activity that more nicely integrates into the other clothes that I'm wearing. Mad Happy wasn't there at the time, but for instance, like from an aesthetic standpoint, similar to that, or Acme Studios or Alexander Wang. And I really thought there was an opportunity to create a product that visually was distinctive from what kind of was already out there and saturated in the market. And so, yeah, the first idea for, for product for Outdoor Voices was really about building the uniform, so the top and the bottom for everyday activity. And we had a hard rule, no black. Eventually, later on, we introduced black, but we really leaned into these more gray, warm palettes that like, you'd absolutely not see at the Nikes, Under Armors, et cetera, of the world. So there was five products you launched, the compression top and bottom, two tops, and a jogger pants. Um, how did you decide that those were the five products to launch with? And um, you know, how'd you go from, all right, these are the five products, and this is why I'm going to launch these to, you know, getting your first uh, production order. I wanted to make dressing simple. And so the more that you could take kind of the choice out of it and just simplify and kind of like merchandise and package for people, that's like really what the first vision for the product was. And so the kit from day one was how I, how I thought about building this for people. And so we offered the top, which was a crop top that I literally sketched in a sketchbook worked with a number of factories to perfect the fit and then the two-tone bottom. And I was like, damn, no one's ever looked better than when they're exercising than in that that two-piece kit. And then we expanded to what do you need to wear over that base layer? And Moise is, is wearing the Moss jersey, which became this really kind of chic and very soft uh, tracksuit. So those four pieces were all you needed to go participate in any recreational activity. And so, yeah, it was really about simplifying choice and 
recommending ahead of that becoming such a thing in the D2C space, like you're one one stop shop for what you needed to be active. So after you designed these five things, you know, you mentioned that you worked with a bunch of factories to like figure out fit. How do you start working with like, you know, I've never done apparel. I don't think Nick's ever done apparel. How do you find factories and what do MOQs look like? You know, uh, how did you sort of get over the initial bumps of like, okay, I've got an idea. I've got sketches. I may have even found materials that I want to go with. What's the factory that you called up? I Googled. That's the best place to start in all in all cases. I had no experience. Although I went to Parsons, I didn't study fashion. I, I had gone for a business degree. And the cool thing about studying business at Parsons is you learn how to use all of the visual tools. So Adobe Suite. So I could visualize essentially the vision for this brand, Googled the hell out of, you know, how do I make a freaking legging? It's certainly not rocket science. And then just through trial and error showed up, learned about pattern making and kind of deduced it to who ultimately could work with stretch fabric and had a specific type of stitching called flat lock that supports this type of fabric. And so I was 20, let's see, 22 or 23. And it was just forcing myself into these rooms to learn as and absorb as much as I can. And that went a long way. That's how old Nick is now. I think Nick is 22 okay, or maybe now. he's turning 22 next say. year. But uh, okay. So how many factories do you have to call up before you find one where you're like, these guys will work with me and their pricing is not bananas? So Midtown was had tons of factories, it still does, but this one called Sunri- Sunrise was willing to like take a first stab at this with me. And so I think it was probably five five factories in and finally I come out, whatever, three months later with these four pieces and they're pretty good. Um, and then I start shopping them around. And pretty quickly after that, I got a call from J. Crew. So to your kind of minimums and PO comment, like, Producing this in Midtown is fucking expensive. And so that wasn't going to realistically, you know, be something sustainable long term. But I got enough kind of created there that I could start to see the places, get interest. And then we got a call from J. Crew, And that was a massive day for us. I think we went from, you know, selling a tiny amount of units to uh, maybe a starting kind of 500k PO that overnight was just like game changer. And so from there, we ended up having to move production to LA. And I literally rented a couch on Craigslist in Venice, got a car, and like until this production um, run was done with the factory in LA, would drive there every single day. Like it was scrappy as hell, but like I look back on it and it was like the best time ever. So at this point, when you've got sales at J. Crew, you don't even have a direct to consumer website. You're only wholesaling at this point. Is that correct? We were in kind of mom and pop and lovely boutiques, like on the small scale. That's where J. Crew happened. And then kind of right around the J. Crew time, we started to pop up or stand up our site. So you don't even have OutdoorVoices.com as a Shopify site when the J. Crew PO rolls in, or at least like when you launch the business? Not when we launched, but probably I remember going towards like, you know, we're going to want to have something stood up on the <laughs> J. Crew. So That's awesome. Around then. Yeah. When you made that transition, one thing I've noticed in clothing brands, like we've worked with some clothing brands, and one thing I noticed is the consistency of the brand assets has to be so consistent from the typeface, the shadows, the way that the photographer takes the photo, the angles of you know everything there, almost to a point where a photo taken four years ago and a photo taken yesterday, you, you wouldn't be able to tell they were taken in a separate shoot. How did that carry into you trans, you know, going from like wholesale and this mom and pop, basically product machine to building this brand where 
you know, you're selling leggings, but you have to get somebody sold on being an outdoor voices girly before they buy the leggings. Firstly, I was able to recruit a small and mighty but like kick-ass team, and a lot of them I still work with today in my new companies. Tiffany was our creative director from day one, and I had worked at worked with her kind of throughout school at a spot that I interned. And so she just out of the gates had always been able to recruit the right people to create a kick-ass brand. And so again, we were really leaning out of kind of traditional active into a much more modern, simple, clean branding kit that also came across in the imagery and it's funny I was looking the other day like back eight years ago to our first shoot ever and to your point like I could stick them up on the side today and they're fucking awesome they'd tell they'd tell the shit out of the two-tone dove and ash leggings and so I don't know that that was just baked into our DNA out of the gates is this like standard of excellence from a visual perspective what attracted people to the brand was a strategy that I called activate IRL and Amplify through digital and social. And so we would host kind of on a weekly basis, different activities in New York, whether it be dog walks, jogging, runners clubs, pickup basketball. And it became this like talked about thing that became the first touch point or kind of introduction for people to outdoor voices. And so people would come in first by learning about some crazy basketball game and like the score was this and can you, you know, this designer scored 10 free throws, some, something like sensationalized and kind of crazy. But like the first touch point in all cases was this community activation and people wanted to be part of it. It was this new kind of view on movement or activity that was fun and like had all walks of life and wasn't the traditional kind of way you think of an activewear brand. And then you'd get them into the product. How many people are showing up to these events? I guess I saw one in San Francisco once and I saw like 40 people jogging and I was like, are you kidding? This is working? Like how many people are showing up to your events? Well, let's see. Fast forward 2019 or so, we hosted literally, I think, a 1500 person exercise dress event in Lincoln Center around the activation of the exercise dress. But when we started, we had another company value called It Starts With Us. And so literally... Our first New York Times article was probably 11 team members back at the office, all sweaty, and and right after we had played pickup basketball. So it literally started with our team, and then we grew it from there. So 11 people, strong, out of the gates. Are you good at pickup basketball? Oh, yeah. I'm really good. I was a three in high school, so I can shoot. Okay, wow. On the dress, so one thing that I thought was crazy was you did the launch with Lil Michaela which is basically, uh, I don't know, an AI influencer. It's like, it's just a, it's not a real person, but you did a full campaign shoot. You know, how, how'd you convince your CFO that like, that's a good idea? We had established a budget for all essentially what we called major moments. And so as long as we were within the parameters of that budget, it was fair game. But one thing we were extremely good at, I guess, out of the gates or since the beginning was, I call it zig when others zag. And we were really experimental in how we brought product to life in like novel, new, exciting ways, but always tied to the mission. Um, And so we talked with Brad and we're like, has little Michaela ever exercised? Can we, you know, bring her to the Venice Beach gym set? And, And it became this whole fun thing for our team. But I don't remember how many followers she had, but we were like the second brand to really partner with her. And I was I was really keen on partnering with people that were very innovative in in ways like that. So that was the first moment for the exercise dress. And the exercise dress has taken on, it's grown to to an extent that like I 
I guess I knew it could, but it's everywhere now. What was the budget for the major moment when you're launching the exercise dress? Probably 40K all in. So including wow. including all assets for um, programming in real life. It always started there, everything on the site and then whatever for the bread team as well. That's less than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, we didn't spend a lot on it. Yeah. I mean, for you guys, Nick, today, well, how, how do you guys think about that? Like what's, a, what's an average budget for a major moment? Probably 20 to 40K, somewhere within there. Mm-hmm. It depends on the size of the brand. Like if it's, uh, you know, 100 million plus, then probably a little bit more. If it's a, a newer, like startup y brand, probably, probably just under 20K within that range. That was like the right amount for us. And it, it was, you know, it helped us, whatever. It was nice to standardize it. <laughs> On that, you probably like, you know, just over the years, you just picked up all these tricks of the trade. So if you had a 40K budget for major moments back then and you were doing another launch for Joggy today, what kind of budget would you put toward it? And like, what would you change about your strategy? So really a headline comment coming off the OV experience was direct to consumers, not direct. And I mean that in we're going and spending money in channels like Facebook and Instagram to acquire customers that ultimately, one, we don't have the data for and, and two, they're not necessarily the customers that are going to stick with us. So what I would do is take half of those dollars and give them directly to my community and incentivize them for helping me to grow. So literally give it to community members, give them prompts to go grow, and then in this very distributed fashion, essentially make my community members more of a formalized part of the team where there's upside for helping to grow. That's like a commission payment or that's like, hey, here's... uh 20 bucks, you know, you're going to go do X, Y, and Z. How does that work? It can, you know, be completed through different mechanisms. But let's say brand coins that can be redeemed either for cash or for exclusive product, perks, etc. It's casting a wider net than just um, like creators or influencers who are built into these major moment go-to-markets, right? It's like anyone with an iPhone that has interest in the brand and has shown kind of loyalty, whether they've shown up to three events or whatever, like how do I actually give them, how do I incentivize them to be the best distribution and growth channel for me? That's how I think about it now. Let me uh, pivot back just a little bit back to Outdoor Voices. You guys uh, were moving your headquarters, you mentioned from New York City to Austin. What year did you make that move? Probably 2015. Oh, wow. So early on in the business, super early. Yeah, I think we had 40 people at the company, but at the board level, this was like not, a, everyone hated that I wanted to move it to, to Austin and thought of OB as like a fashion brand and needs to be in New York. But we had launched in New York, you know, gotten on enough people's radars from a PR perspective. And then as we thought about like, where's the number one recreation brand going to be located? It's got to be a place where you can hop in the water, jump on trails, et cetera. So Austin made sense. But that was like one of the most challenging parts of my job was like, getting the board there and then making a move was also quite like moving 40 people was also quite crazy. But now look at Austin. It's like where everyone wants to be. It's pretty funny. Yeah. You seem like it was really on the cutting edge. Did you lose any people when you were making the move or did everyone ultimately uh, come down? Like 90%. And we made it a requirement. There were a few people we were flex for. Um, Yeah, sure. And like one thing I wish that we had done differently was we shouldn't have required that people all move there. Like that could be our headquarters, but look at, you know, remote work now. It works just fine. But, you know, it was hard for everyone to wrap their their head around that. That said, 
bringing out our voices to Austin was probably the best thing we ever did for the business to set it up for the future. So you guys, I, I uh, heard this podcast where you rented an 800 square foot house on Blanco Street as your first brick and mortar store. What was the rent and like, you know, was there a board decision of sort of being like, hey, should we do brick and mortar? Or was everyone like, yeah, we need to do our own brick and mortar? Or, or you know, were people like, yeah, let's sell a Nordstrom? Were people like, let's do our own brick and mortar? Or were people like, let's do only direct to consumer? Was that a board decision? Or was everyone Later sort of aligned? On, yeah. yeah. Later on, as the company got more and more valuable, it became more of a board topic. But at that point in time, like, it was us just really leaning into this IRL strategy. And so, we're like, if we're going to activate this frequently, we need a home base. We really leaned out of traditional retail. We weren't going to go to like the shopping district and into the residential neighborhoods where people are walking their dogs, you know, playing Frisbee. Like, let's let's let that be our home base. And this like community offline small retail strategy ultimately became our most kind of productive way of unlocking total markets, inclusive of the digital uh, business. Do you remember the rent on that store that was 800 square feet? 1200 a month, something like that. That was part of the formula. In all cases, low rent, like not big box kind of mall type locations by any means. It had to be easy to get to, low rent, and they'd pay back. I think we had like a four month payback window or something. It, and that was like very easy to crush. Were build outs expensive? Like, uh, you know, I've been to, I've probably been to dozen, like, you know, eight outdoor voices stores. Yeah. And the build outs look like they're great because people were like, we're going to make this look really nice, but it also doesn't look like we spent, you know, 400. Like when I go to an Allbirds store, I'm like, you guys spent $400,000 on this. When I go to an OV store, I'm like, there was not $400,000 spent on no, this. Exactly. But it certainly speaks about the brand. The only thing people cared about was, again, the, these community activations like that's where the enthusiasm and excitement was so like we needed cool people to show up and cool people to host but like the rest could be simple and so that again was a model that really worked I think I think the max we spent was probably 200k on a store at least kind of when that was our playbook later on as kind of there were other views on how to grow and like more traditional retail came into play we spent way beyond that which wasn't part of the you know vision early on Okay, let's fast forward to like 2018. The business is, you know, 2014, you're sort of starting out, you're moving to Austin, you launch a store. 2018, you've got probably a dozen or a handful of stores, certainly more than two or three. I think I read you did about $40 million in revenue in 2018. Is that primarily coming from direct to consumer? Is that coming from brick and mortar? How is that sort of split up at that point? 40 million in 18. We did 70 at the end of. 2019. Anyway, uh, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, it was 70% was online. 70% was online. Okay. Yeah, 70% was online. But again, like this store strategy was how we unlocked a market. I think at that point in time, we had eight, eight stores. How big is the team at that point? You mentioned you moved 40 people down from Austin in 2014, give or take. Uh, how big is the team in 2018, 2019? Probably 90 people, something around there. How is design work? Like, you know, are 40 people in design? Are 10 people in design? You got to release like, you know, you want to drop uh, new new products every month, every six weeks, every season. How do you think about that kind of stuff? We probably had 10 people, maybe 12 in kind of what we called product and product development. We really broke it into three themes. There was major moments, which is always around some sort of new exercise dress like product launch or the running collection. 
Then we had um, kind of seasonal capsules. And so kind of our core products in, in new colorways and prints every two, two to three weeks that dropped. And then we had core, you know, grays, everything, product that was always in stock. How do you manage that type of inventory? If you're doing, like, you know, we launched, I ran this company called uh, this deodorant business and we had seasonal scents. We only dropped three a season and, you know, we had a pretty good understanding of what sales would look like because we were all direct to consumer. And uh, even then we'd be like, fuck, we have extra scents. What are we going to do with these? How do you manage that if you're doing every two to three weeks, you're launching a seasonal capsule with like new seasonal scents? How do you manage inventory that way? Yeah, with the prints, et cetera, it was very much about scarcity. So they were designed to sell out. That said, I remember sitting in a very specific meeting where the question was asked, how high is high? And we ended up wanting to, or we ended up placing like a massive PO against a pink flamingo legging that then we sat on for like literally three years and our cash was tied up in that fucking pink pink flamingo flamingo. legging. So how high is high was like, continues to be like the bane of my existence. That was like the worst question ever for the business. But I think like celebrating sellouts and certainly people are pissed when they leave a lot on the table, but you don't want to be sitting on a ton of inventory. Did you ever have secondary markets or channels you would just offload inventory to? Not like the first six years, but then as we had bigger misses just by nature of being bigger, yeah, like we'd go to, you know, we'd put it into TJ Maxx and stuff and that was like, soul crushing how do they buy that like i bought quip floss for like six dollars from there and i think it sells for 30 or 40 and like they're not not making money on six dollars so how do do they buy that it was so discounted i i wasn't all that close to that but it must have been like it was definitely like 80 percent off retail something like that you're shopping for floss at TJ Maxx, Nick? No, for the record, for the record, my sister loves TJ Maxx. She loves to go just like snoop the aisles. I was looking to see, there was probably seven or eight direct-to-consumer brands that are like, you know, iconic direct-to-consumer brands now just being sold at, at TJ Maxx for like 10% of what they should be selling for. And as a brand person, I I was like, what the fuck are, what's happening here? But I mean, my dad loves TJ Maxx, so... I think there's there's something interesting there. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy way to build an Indian audience too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I see so many brands still failing to optimize for mobile. It's bananas. We get into it on this pod. You have to create a seamless customer digital experience. And TapCard is doing exactly that. Building world-class apps for brands. When two-thirds of e-commerce comes through mobile, you need TapCart to come up with the best mobile experience for your customers. Visit tapcart.com forward slash limited and get two months free. Okay, so we're in 2018. You're doing 40 million in sales. 2019, you're doing 70 million in sales, it sounds like. You, you've you raised about 50 or $60 million at this point mm-hmm. in venture capital funding, which is kind of like um, bananas that that was like three or four years ago because now I feel like Venture capital funding for direct-to-consumer businesses is so, so much tougher. Uh, you know, one of your investors is Google Ventures. Amazing. We tried to raise money from Google Ventures, and Google Ventures was like, get the fuck out of here. You're not a tech company. Fuck you and your deodorant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were much nicer about it than that. But like, uh, how do you raise money from Google Ventures? Is that just a... T- tell me how that process went. I mean, when you clicked into the data, we had a very sticky customer. And so as as there was, I think we were three to four years in, like from a lifetime value perspective, when you look under the hood, the fundamentals of like 
the customer for this business were really strong. And so, you know, that paired with this big vision and and a really unique way of like an approach kind of out of the gates, like that was a, a very compelling package. Do you remember what retention looked like? Um, like, what does retention look like in an apparel business? I, you know, if you could say ten percent, and I've had no idea if that's the, a good answer, or you could say ninety-eight percent. I'd have no idea. No, I, I think it's closer to like thirty percent. Um, okay. th- that's like what, and you know, immediately comes to mind. But that—that's how we got Google in at the time. Is like the fundamentals, and that was the beauty of like being in the activewear space. Like, it's just chemistry when you can get people to get endorphins going and then associate the product, right? I mean, you have 15 of the hoodies. I don't know that I ever saw you at an event with us, but... Yeah, if I, if I look, this is the only clothing I have, to be clear. Like, anyone who's ever seen me is like, this is the only thing Moise has ever worn in his entire life. So, yeah, the, I, I, I don't even change based on season, only black. So, yeah, if you'd saw me at an event, I would have been wearing this. Um, so, yeah, I, I understand the stickiness of the customer. Do you remember what does what return rates look like? What does AOV look like? I mean, AOV would have been at like 140 because most people were buying at least two pieces. Um, return, I again am directionally guessing, but it was like 12% potentially. Um, wow, that's pretty good for apparel. Yeah, it, it well, it's stretchy. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Did you guys ever try like um, try before you buy type thing or? No. No, no, no. Um, kit, kits were a really interesting acquisition vehicle for us. And, and ultimately, when we looked at the paid channels, like that's really the only thing that worked. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm curious kind of your perspective on the activewear space and how you might approach it now. But like it was so saturated and everyone was like selling the same value prop. But as soon as we clicked into kits and it was like the clueless closet where you could be brought in by an ad into this kit selector where you have, you know, the blue crop top and you can slide it to the to match the charcoal legging that was like one of the moment only moments i remember from a paid channel perspective that i was like okay this there's a flywheel that that could really work here what was the like with the online marketing what was the the best type of like messaging or creative that you guys ran that significantly outperformed other other types I mean, I think this is well known. Again, Nick, I'm I'm curious your thoughts, but like I had a strategy that was document don't produce and this was like ahead of UGC being a thing. But like anytime we'd push a carousel out of like people crossing the finish line in polka dot shorts and then like someone in a dress like literally skiing down a hill, but all user generated content like that would blow any produced kind of campaign out of the water. What's hap- I'm curious your thoughts there. Like what tell me what's new. I mean, I think especially in apparel, like I said earlier, it's like you're kind of building that mindset to buy into or like that ecosystem to buy into, you know, like I think OV did such a good job of it, playing that middle ground between an athlete and somebody who sits on their couch, I guess. The the in-between space, I think you guys owned, whereas like all the competitors were on one side or the other. And I think a lot of people just bought into it. And the the other interesting thing was, you know, you guys did the tote bag. I think you were the first to do the tote bag, uh, mm-hmm. the famous mm-hmm. OV tote bag. That was like another checkbox that people wanted to buy into the brand. Even when they're not wearing OV, they wanted to signal to others that they were like an OV girl. Totally. And that that became, I mean, people were walking billboards for us. And then like, it was a whole like avalanche of tote bags right after that. The other thing we had that like symboled your participation or part belonging to the community was the blue doing things hat, right? So like, 
we had these little physical souvenirs that, you know, then you'd see someone in kind of a gym class or workout class with the blue doing things hat, you'd high five and be like, ah, you know what's up too. And that became this really nice way to kind of enable peer-to-peer kind of organic growth. You were talking about the marketing earlier and particularly paid ads and what worked with Nick. Um, you know, what was the budget for paid ads? How much were you guys spending on paid ads? And, um, you know, because you guys, you had also mentioned that you had a $40,000 in real life, let's activate exercise dress. You mm-hmm. know, was Facebook the number one channel? I would, I would guess so just based on like, you know, the timing and what Facebook was like, but. We never got good at this. If I look back and think like, where were we most challenged? We at kind of the highest level had had three very different views on how to grow. I was very bullish on what I called this community uh, strategy. So again, what we've described a few times, anyone who came through an event or the store first ultimately was four times more valuable than anyone coming through paid. We then had kind of traditional VCs who were like, our health company is like, you know, crushing it over here. Like, let's pour more dollars here. So we literally would put 30% of our dollars raised against Facebook and Instagram. But like, I can't tell you like ultimately what the repeatable pathway or what I'd pour money into, you know, go forward was. It never, it never felt like it was working. We needed Nick for sure. And then the third, the third view was like, okay, it's time to step up into big retail. And like, that's when we started signing huge storefronts with like 40K a month rents. I'm not joking. I think Flatiron on, in New York was like that much. And I'm, I just remember seeing sitting there and being like, holy shit, we can't we can't be running three strategies at once. And ultimately, like when news came out, like that was right at the moment that we're sitting there like executing against three very different strategies. And like that was the first time that like I really felt felt what being a CEO looks and feels like. Cause like ultimately I'm accountable, but we had three very different perspectives on how how to grow. I'm sorry. So this, the strategies were one, like amazing storefronts, like in uh, expensive storefronts, at least like in Flatiron. The other was direct to consumer and like the Facebook flywheel effect. And mm-hmm. the third strategy was sort of like the, hey, we've got a small storefront in a sort of a hidden spot and it's cheap rent, but that's how we activate re- in real life people. Is that correct? And that third, I just call community. It's really this like programming first, right? So field marketing, programming, had running a, a distributed network of ambassadors who are essentially like activated in that way. You know, it sounds like you weren't a big fan of the three strategies. And, you know, l- let me uh, tell a story about my past. I felt like at some point when I was running Native under Procter & Gamble's umbrella, I had the title as CEO, but I was making virtually no decisions because P&G had sort of been like, hey, this is this is the decisions that we want to like execute against. So we're going to make these decisions. Did you feel like the the three strategies were not yours or like, did you feel like you owned them or did you feel like, you know, the board was a part of that influence and sort of helping, sort of saying, hey, these are the three strategies we want to see you execute? I wish I would have known how to manage the politics at that level at that time. Me too. I was like way fucking in over my head. Right. And I I was like so operational that I was like, you know, this is working. This is working. We're going to keep leaning into it. That said there were no tools to like in real time show kind of what community efforts netted from a value creation standpoint. And so like fast forward to today, like that's my focus. I'm like, this is a real strategy that's very valuable for for brands that get this right. But like we'd be piecing together different data points to try and show that this was where we should be spending our dollars. And then again, Mickey, who who joined kind of a few years in was like this retail legend. He had a very 
specific view on how to grow and you can understand or assume what that would be. And then again, like our VCs were seeing in other spaces that the D2C model really works. So that's where we ended up being like not efficient enough with, we spent way too much money and, and ultimately that, that was a real issue. It's crazy how, I, I think that's the most impressive thing I see about some startup founders. And I lack the ability to play the politics as well. And I was like, sort of being told what to do by the time I left. And I was like, okay, I guess these are the things that we got to do because you know this is the owner. For a while, I did a really good job of standing up and being like, this is the exit strategy I want to execute. Everyone else go fuck yourself. And then after a while, I was like, okay, this is there are too many people yelling at me where I, it's too hard to fight this many battles at once. So I've got to cave on a couple of these things. And it sounds like that's maybe that is or where or not where you got to. Like it sounds a little bit of like there was a board, there were uh, you know VC founders, there were Mickey, all pulling you into different directions, and you were like leaning in towards community, but you sort of had to listen to the board and to Mickey because they were these legends and important part of the business, uh, and you got stretched in these different directions. Is that fair or an unfair? Yeah, way to put to- it? you got it okay. totally, hundred yeah, yeah, yeah. percent. Interesting, challenging dynamic. <laughs> yeah, it is It is shocking how like people are like, how does that happen? And you're like, look, you know, uh, people would say it about Twitter as well. Like Jack Dorsey was going to uh, like, you know, somebody else was, I think it was like Biz Stone or somebody was CEO of Twitter and Jack Dorsey was, uh, you know, the Twitter guys control the board and everything, the Twitter founders. And people were like, oh, he's never going to get fired because the Twitter guys control the company. The reality is when you have enough shareholders calling you up or enough people calling you up, putting pressure on you, it's really hard not to cave. It's really hard to stand up and be the Steve Jobs and be like, everyone else, shut the fuck up. I have the only vision that matters. I don't give a fuck if you call me. I'm just not going to pick up that phone call any longer. Yeah, I think also Mickey had never not been a CEO. So it it really became like this co-CEO way of running the company, which like split the team weirdly too. It was a fucked up dynamic. But like, ultimately, like, I'm very grateful for all of those learnings to apply kind of on these next two businesses. Was there a tipping point with Mickey or did it just become a slow evolution? With with uh, Native, what happened was the guy who ran deodorants at P&G yeah. left, mm-hmm. quit, and then there was a new sheriff in charge. And that wasn't a tipping point, but it got to the point where I was like, okay, this guy and I, look, you know, he didn't make the deal with me. And so uh, he, did, he isn't beholden to the promises that he made to me before we sold the business. So there was never a tipping point. It was just like a slow evolution. Was there a tipping point for you or was it a slow evolution? The moment I started saying... I disagreed and and no, we're not going to go in the North Park Mall in Dallas. Like we have a store down the way on the corner that's doing fantastic. That's when at the like I st- it started to be a challenging dynamic at, at the board level. And I ran essentially a let's nicely get M- Mickey off the board campaign for a full year um, because I I could see that something troubling was going to happen. And so the how high is high question came from Mickey. And there were just a number of moments in time like that that I would push back against. And then it became at the board level, ties difficult, da 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 da. And, and that was a really difficult personality and, and dynamic to manage. But it was a long time coming. Well, kudos to you for being like, I'm rejecting how high is high. Scarcity is important. Selling out is important. And like not tying up a bunch of cash is important. I felt beholden to the, or like, you know, I fell into the drugs of how high is high. Let's mm-hmm. overproduce inventory. And at some point I was like, oh my God, we're sitting on, you know, millions of dollars yeah. of stuff that we don't even have on the website. We're fucked. Yeah. Um, yeah. So good for you for doing that. Like um, the the how high is high is a drug and that drug is easy to get addicted to because you get more revenue and your numbers look like they're up and to the right. Good for you for being like, look, no, scarcity and selling out is what we should be doing here. 
one question I have just like around this or something that I think about often is like, how quickly should an apparel brand like Outdoor Voices like actually grow in this day and age? And like, should it get as much capital as we were able to get? And I, I don't know if you guys have a perspective there, but I'm like, one, companies that go from like zero to like fucking huge overnight, like automatically make themselves a trend. So like, is there really sustainability, you know, in that approach? And then two, like as a young founder, you know, we really needed to master the fundamentals before pouring fuel on this fire. And like that became very evident. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious if you guys have any reaction to that. I've got a reaction, but before I give you my reaction, I'm curious, like, do you wish you had raised less money? Yeah, I think it would have required that we didn't run three different strategies at once, you know? And like, like the direct to consumer venture model is like, what's the likelihood of success? Like we're seeing it everywhere. Like I'd much rather go slower and like have 20% more chance of having something to show for it at the end of the day. Like, fuck that. (laughs) It was, it was totally nuts. That is a great answer. I cannot believe you just said that. Uh, you said, I raise less money so I can execute the strategy that I want instead of having three strategies which we're funded for. That is a great yep. fucking answer. Yeah, I think that it really depends on the founder. Like, I, and Nick, I'd love to hear your opinion. For me, I'm like, look, there are, you know, when Brian Lee from Honest and, um, you know, LegalZoom starts a business, his goal is to build a $10 billion business and a $500 million business or $100 million. You'd look at Native and be like, that was a huge failure for me because sure. I'm, I, 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 my goal is to hit grand slams and not to hit doubles or singles. And so I think for him, going out and raising $100 million from Forerunner is a great starting point to try and build a $10 billion business. I think for me, that would be a disaster because I'd end up building a $100 million business with $100 million fundraised. And I'd be like, this business is now worth what the investors put in. And nope, I'm never going to see a dollar of this. And so it's not a good exit for me. And so I think it really depends on what the founder is looking for and what they're signing up for. You know, Brian may also want to be like, look, I want to be out of this business in five years. So I need a bunch of capital to get burned through and build that business. And I'm like, look, I don't mind spending 10 years building a sustainable business that's smaller. And uh, like, you know, there's distributions and that's how people get paid and they make a ton of money, but it's a a lot longer term outcome. Yep, it is. It comes down to the amount of time. And that's something I've also learned coming off that experience is like in anything I'm building now, there's... There's got to be optionality for an exit with within two to three years. And like that doesn't mean like, hell yeah, I'm going to for sure sell like three years in. But just like time to liquidity like becomes much more real after going through nine years of building something like, you know, fuck, (laughs) that's totally nuts. We, we were trying to raise money at one point and we talked to this VC fund and they're like, we'll offer, we can fund you, we can put $3 million at a $30 million valuation in, okay. or we can put $30 million at a $300 million valuation. We're willing to write both of those term sheets today. The $3 million one, you can sell your business six months from now and everyone will be happy. The $30 million one, you have to sign up for working here for five more years. And I was like, this is bananas. I'm valued at 30 million or 300 million. I get to select which one I want. And the question is just how much time am I willing to put in? So I think you're absolutely right. Like those valuation, like, you know, you've got to sign up for a really large outcome and a long time of risk uh, or a lot of risk if you're going to take that $30 million check. Yeah. Slow and steady, I feel like is just the way to do it, especially if you're going direct to consumer, unless you're trying to do like, you know, I met somebody last, last Wednesday who wants to build like a Brian type business and he's going to go raise 25 million and try to do that. But if somebody was launching an apparel brand, I think the... 
almost the way you kind of did it. You test the water, see what the appetite is, and then go in where you can. Like Matt Happy does a great job of that. You know, I first met Payman in 2016 or 17, and he was like, what's Facebook ads? You know, how does this thing work? And, uh, you know, that was- in 2017? Yeah, almost eight years ago. Oh my and, God. Um, you know, then you look at how they've grown so nicely uh, with their own kind of fan base, community, building products that are pretty much always sold out and just doing things that kind of become the center of culture when they drop it and people rally around it. And it's not driven by ads. It's not driven by, you know, how can we throw money at this pro- at, at making this brand bigger? It's like, how can we build more experiences? That's the thing. We had so much going for us. Like, And again, on this sticky base, these major moments were like these organic, beautiful storytelling moments that ultimately were like the unlock for the business until we started going everywhere else. So the Mad Happy team does a great job. What was the best memory that you have from OV, from your time of running OV? Was it sleeping on that sofa in Venice or was it something else? We hosted a 1600 person and dog dog jog in Austin, like our version of a 5K and 10K. And this is something that we're going to take in, and run forward with Joggy, the, the new company. But like that was the best day of my life. We had all of these dog influencers connected to their owners and like we ran it like a race. And so it was a 5K and we had, um, you know, the whole setup. It like visually looked like a 5K or 10K in your town. And we announced something at the beginning and then we had like people in cat costumes like kick us off and then the dogs went. But then at the end, it was BarkBox. It was Chewy. It was like all this fun kind of partnership That's around awesome. the end. And that that was like, such a special and like unique to OV kind of bringing to life of, of the mission. And so that felt totally right on. The, uh, the other thing that, that was really fun that we should have created um, a toolkit for other brands to use was when we launched our partnership with Hoka and the running collection, we essentially created this AI or augmented reality shop that we lo- geolocated kind of in, I think, 150 locations kind of across the U.S., like at trails and point like dog parks and places where you had to like walk or run to and that for the first two days was the only place that you could buy the new collection and the hoka shoe and so i literally got people physically participating in the mission and those were like the coolest coolest kind of ways to activate so we were really good at those and i i really enjoyed kind of with the team coming up with those experiential ways of launching new products uh let me ask the opposite question which was what is your least favorite memory at ov I think waking up after some business of fashion article had come out, co-written by you know who, <laughs> and being like, "Fuck, I'm gonna have to like look up how to resign. I've never resigned from something in my entire life." So I literally like type it into Google, like, "Is there anything legally I need to cover?" And I shot out this email to the board and said, "Hey, I hereby resign from After Voices doing things tie," and like that was such a formal way to do it, but like that crushed me. I mean. Like leaving the baby that you built and and I ended up coming back a month later, leaving again. But like, oh, that was the worst day ever in the history of OV for me. Did you get a chance to explain that to your team? Like, you know, your team is, you know, it's you led by a uh, cult of personality. Like, you know, if you have a 2000 person team, yeah, nobody knows who Tim Cook is who works at Apple. That's not nobody knows. But like, you know, you're pretty far divorced from him. Your team, everybody knows and loves you. Oh, yeah. Did you get a chance to do that or was it sort of like, no, okay. No, it was cut off. And, and it's interesting because that the, the reason I paused when you said 40 million, I don't remember. I think that was net at some point, but there was like 
a publishing of facts that came from somebody's head instead of like verified with a company. And what was so painful was looking at those facts, quote unquote facts, be having just left the company and then no one in the company knowing how to essentially run crisis comms or like, you know, go stand up for the company. And then those numbers essentially got run with in like every other distribution. So that was painful. But no, there was no um, ability to speak with the team. I was like cut off and cut out. I was asked to come back and like, again, like, was you know, had spent so much time. I'm like, there's got to be a way to make this work. And so I went back for a short time and then was re- like so much put in a box that like it wasn't it wasn't going to work. So the article comes out and you resign because you've been saying, hey, Mickey and I cannot coexist and make OV a super successful business. Yeah. You see that article and you're sort of like, now is not my time or the board has chosen Mickey or you're like, you know what? They just didn't act yeah. fast enough. Like okay. I've been saying for a year, like, dudes, we got to we got to make a change. And then that happened. And then uh, they ask you to come back. Why would they ask you? Like, it's so weird that they'd uh, ask you to come back and that you come back. And what was the role? Like, what was the goal of you coming back 30 days later? Sort of like an ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend getting back 30 days. Uh, you know, that I understand. That yeah. I've done. But tell me about the other one. The board, apart from Mickey, was not trying to get rid of me by any means. Like, And I yeah, think okay. that's like the last thing to do when like taking the founder out of a company is like a no, you know, no go. That's just like not the right thing in most cases. So that was my choice and then was kind of coerced back into, hey, you know, you can contribute in these areas, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I want to see this thing through. And then the dynamic was just, it wasn't a place for me to be. And, you know, ultimately what I realized was like the opportunity cost of like having whatever, 7% of this company and like a tiny ability to participate and contribute or like start from scratch. I have no lack of ability to like set a vision and go execute against it. So like, that's what I'm going to go do. And thank God it's not in the fucking legging world anymore. Like that was a nightmare. (laughs) Well, as someone who loves Outdoor Voices products, I wish you would uh, do some more leggings or some more apparel. Um, I understand why you won't. I've been saying man leggings is a trend that needs to exist (laughs) since Uh I saw the two-tone leggings Uh because I may have have been a little jealous, but I think man leggings are a thing that's going to happen soon. Everyone who works out at Equinox in San Francisco wears leggings because Steph Curry wears leggings to basketball games. Everyone who works out in New York, nobody wears leggings because Steph Curry isn't there. Yeah. I'm in love with the space, like yeah. but more around the activity and like, yeah, you yeah. know, you want to be wearing like cool shit. So at some point in time, I'm sure I'll do it as like a hobby. So uh, let me take one step back. So you uh, came back as sort of helping with, not as the chief executive officer, but helping contributing in certain ways after 30 days, left again. You had mentioned you had about 7% of the stake of the business at that point. Is that about right? Yeah, I think maybe a little bit less than that, but around there. Okay. And then what happened? Um, you're not involved anymore. Is that correct? Correct. Um, I left a year and a half ago. And do you still own that 7% or has the business been recapitalized and it's all over or like what's happening? No today? clue. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. I also went back. That's a great answer. Un- yeah. Unclear what my position was. It was just a very mishandled moment. All right. Should we get into the lightning round, Moise? I'd love to. Yeah. Okay. This is, yeah, I love this question, uh, which is, you know, I read this article where you met Junior Seau at a restaurant while you were a waitress at Border yeah. Cafe in Harvard Square. Uh, Border Cafe is shut down, by the way. Like, uh, they closed I know. during uh, COVID. So, I heard. So, I think a bunch of the Patriots would come there. Who was the best tipper on the Patriots? Uh, Junior Seau. That's why we were <laughs> friends. 
<laughs> of course. <laughs> That's why you were friends. Okay. Great <laughs> yeah. answer. Okay. Ovi has done a bunch of collaborations. Which one was your favorite? Our APC collaboration and our Hoka collaboration. What was the APC one about? It was working with John Tutu, APC legacy kind of heritage brand and infusing kind of the DNA of both brands into this really lovely uh, collection that, that really blended kind of your active life with your daily fashion life. Do you wear a fitness tracker? Nope. Love that answer. I feel like everyone is all about digital measuring their fitness and you're like, I like to go out and sweat, but I don't need to measure it. That's a great answer. I love, yeah, being outdoors. Uh, what is your favorite restaurant in Austin? Bufalina. Okay. To where I met my husband. We went on a date there. Was it your first date? Yes. Okay, yeah, you said, that, you said that's where you met him. Okay, yeah. That was after the, the Let's Hang DM? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, outside of Joggy, do you take any supplements? I take NAD and resveratrol. I don't know how to say it out loud from Alive by Science. I'm really into like cellular health and cellular energy. So that'll soon become part of Joggy, which we haven't talked about Joggy and TYB guys. This is true. I just took my uh, recharges that you gave me. Supercharges. Supercharges. Okay, let's talk about Joggy as soon as we finish the lightning round. Uh, okay, so what was the best selling color at OV? Navy. We called it Nature's Black. <laughs> God, you have great answers. <laughs> what was your favorite OV product? The exercise dress. What was your least favorite OV product? The pink flamingo leggings. Yeah, okay. And if you couldn't wear OV, what other brand for athletic clothing would you wear? Now the Giacomus Nike collaboration. Interesting. I'm not familiar with that collaboration. I'm going to have to check it out. Okay, going kind of into TYB now. If I was five years old, how would you explain TYB? TYB is a toolkit for brands to manage their superfans and community. So at the Juneshine tasting room, for example, there was a QR code with the menu and there was a QR code with TYB. Uh, so how does that work? I'm going to use After Voices quickly as an example. So I talked about the Blue Doing Things hat, where essentially if you came to an event participated in the movement, you'd get a blue doing things hat and it symboled your part of the Outdoor Voices community. TYB is enabling that same behavior, but with digital collectibles that essentially live in a wallet. And so think that blue doing things hat becomes digital, lives in a wallet, and now gives me access to things like the exercise dress event or a private page on the shopping site. It gives me perks. And so it becomes a really effective way for brands to directly connect with their super fans and build more meaningful relationships. Awesome. And that's a Shopify app. It's just as simple as like adding it to your store or. About to be. Have you guys have seen the Starbucks Odyssey and Nike.swoosh programs, right? Yeah. So we've white labeled kind of a Web3 loyalty solution that allows brands to do the exact same and create kind of this game for um, engagement with their fans. Um, and yes, it's about to be, it'll be available the first week of February on Shopify and it's first Web3 loyalty kind of end-to-end -end program. Uh, what brands are using TYB right now? Our um, kind of fastest growing community is a brand called Topicals. And I think Topicals is the fastest growing brand within Sephora, which is kind of funny. But they essentially 
are using the toolkit to as a community management and ambassador management program, and they successfully transferred 90 95% of their ambassador group into TYB, have started to engage um, in prompt engagement and reward for this engagement with their community, and they have eight times the amount of engagement using TYB as opposed to other kind of previous channels. So they use things like Grin, et cetera. And so essentially, here's how it works. You formalize the engagement by giving someone that blue doing things hat. That blue doing things hat now becomes your access into the community where you're engaging with prompts, whether it be sharing to social, submitting a review, sharing with a friend, et cetera. All these actions that community members are already taking, but you're getting rewarded for them with brand coins. I then start to collect brand coins and those brand coins can be redeemed for things on the Shopify store. And so at the simplest level, that's kind of the, the foundational flow. And so it, it's, at, you know, allowing brands to make their community a productive and sustainable growth channel for them. That's a great explanation uh, with digitizing the blue hat. Like blue I feel hat. like no one's ever explained to me Web3 as clearly as that did. And so it totally makes sense with your background and how you use your community to like activate the brand. Yeah. Nick, do we, should we move into Joggy? Yeah. I tell Joggy, at least the runner's high product, I tell everybody it's like Adderall. I think that was my yes, review on the, on the site too. Uh, so funny. What is in this? So I know that it's water-based and not oil-based. I guess it's technically, is it CBD? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's CBD, but it's so like, it doesn't have that weird taste and almost instantly <laughs> you feel the effect. And, uh, even on, fr on this past Sunday, I, I ran a 5k and I had my supercharges in my pocket. And then I took a squirt of the runner's high right before, <laughs> and it felt like it was a two minute run. Hell yeah. But like, what did you do with this? What is THCV? Yeah, THCB is a very specific cannabinoid. So it comes from the hemp, hemp plant that gives you kind of this slight euphoric feeling that I call the runner's high. It, it, it like matches the feeling of a runner's high. And so just quickly, Joggy's an energy company, like supplements energy, and, and we use plant-based clean ingredients. The goal is to kill Red Bull. And we have five products at the moment that currently do have different cannabinoids you know, based on the desired effect. But the first product is called runner's high and you take it before working out and it gives you the feeling of a runner's high. And so the mission of Joggy is how do we max help people maximize happiness through movement? And this is a product, a starting lineup and kind of like assortment of products that both help with the energizing and recovery needs around activity. So if you search Ty Haney on TikTok, there's probably like I mean, in four minutes, I found five or six that were basically saying, I will buy anything that Ty Haney drops. And they all were talking about Joggy because, you know, basically like OV was the first one, Joggy's the second one. <laughs> There's so many farms that when you Google like uh, white label CBD, and this is a different formulation than I've ever seen before. Did you study CBD? Did you study this? Or were you like, my end goal is a good energy brand and I'm going to go find somebody who's good at figuring out the product? Yeah, 100%. The category is energy. So we're not a CBD brand and CBD sucks. Like in, in my past, I'm sure you guys have had similar experiences. Like I've never felt it. It tastes bad. I'm like, you know, this is snake oil. I started um, training for a half marathon in Austin, probably around the time I was leaving Outdoor Voices and started digging into the science, you know, behind the endocannabinoid system, which is in our body. 
and is actually what gives you the feeling of a runner's high, the endocannabinoids when you work out. And so I clicked into the science, realized that endorphins can't cross the blood-brain barrier, so something else has to be giving you that euphoria, and then found um, this really awesome, uh, essentially, lab that works in the cannabinoid space out of Austin and said, hey, this this is what I'm understanding from the science. Help me design uh, a formula that would bring kind of that same feeling to life and supplement kind of our already existing system that makes something chemically similar to cannabis. And so that's where Runner's High came from. We're one of two companies at the moment to use THCV, which is a more recently researched cannabinoid. And it's the only cannabinoid that I know of from the hemp plant that has these energizing properties. It's also focusing, like Nick, you've said, we've heard that all over the place now that people say it feels like the plant-based version of Adderall. But for me, I'm like, who wouldn't spend $3 to like enjoy their run more? Like that, That's like one way you know, to think of it, the value prop here. And really joggies a little motivation for people to be active with really good energy products. So interesting. And tell me a little bit, like, is it easy to ship across state lines? Are there any issues with shipping it or like, how does that work? No issues with shipping it. Uh, that said, the FDA is going to be crackling down on regulation around cannabinoids. Yeah. Uh, we happen to work with a facility that's the leader in accredited testing. So that really becomes an opportunity for the few of us who have, from a testing standpoint, like crossed our T's and dotted our I's. Um, but, but really the like cannabis plant, there's so much opportunity, yet there's so much baggage. It's pretty funny now to come off Outdoor Voices into crypto and CBD. <laughs> Um, that would be the critical way of looking at it, but there's also so much opportunity in both of these spaces to do it in a way that like actually is valuable and, and people, you know, start to understand that there are real benefits. Yeah. I feel like THC I've read, you can only ship it within a state that it's grown, but does the THCV, because it's like a different cannabinoid, it has uh, different rules. THCV, not to be confused with THC is non-psychoactive. So there's slight kind of joyful feelings associated with it, but you're not high. And is it like caffeine? Like, for example, I'm going to go to a basketball game after this. If I take some, am I going to have a hard time sleeping in a few hours? No, you won't have a hard time sleeping. It, it's like much milder on, on your system than caffeine. The coolest thing about it is like it's subtle, it's nuanced, and it's like sustained. And so I've had a lot of Red Bull in my life and I'm like, love it, but got to part with it. Like, I don't want the up and down of energy products anymore. I want like this sustained kind of clean burning energy. And that that's that's like the big unlock with using cannabinoids here versus purely caffeine. Did you start this with just your own investment? Like what, what does that take to basically get V1 of a brand from start to, to this? I raised money for TYB, like the umbrella company first and Joggy was our first brand to go live. We have bootstrapped it like pretty phenomenally. It's been an experiment that's gone very well with very little dollars kind of towards it. And so we put an initial chunk of money in for product development and then started selling. We sold a Joggy Doggy uh, founding member collectible when we first launched Joggy. We, we sold 500 of them for 250 each, giving kind of collectible holders like a, a list of perks. And so first day, I think it was 110K and then... Wow started selling products like immediately thereafter. So very much a different model applied to Joggy in terms of how we want to grow this. And the beauty is the margin is 70 
to 80%. It's almost like a beauty beauty business. And so this can be a very healthfully run and profitable business. How did you get those first 500 people? Like, was it just your Instagram? Yeah. Wow. People who, yeah, who have, you know, been part of the OV story and people like you described on TikTok. Though I'm not on TikTok. Maybe I should start. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And then and then we've raised uh, $10 million for TYB. And really the headline there is we're leveraging the blockchain to offer a better business model for brands that are structurally reliant on ad platforms today. So take 20% of that 30% you're spending on Facebook and Instagram and reallocate it to your community and directly work with that group to help you grow as a distributed network versus the other channels. Yeah, there was a concept that a friend of mine had uh, a couple years ago where he was like, you know, you should take 5% of your company, divvy it up into essentially like tokens, give it to a Mm -hmm. bunch of really small creators who just want to create content and love the brand. And, you know, five years from now, out of those maybe thousand people, you know, 12 of them are going to have 10 million followers. And that's all you need to, to kind of for this thing to kind of take off. The coolest thing about Web3 for me is this ownership and the ability for like people who are fans of the brand and loyalists of a brand having stake or aligned incentive, even if it starts with a collectible that unlocks specific perks, that over time you have the ability as a brand to like increase that incentive, ownership and style, et cetera. But like stake in the game is going to meaningfully change kind of the ability to supercharge fandom around a brand tied to growth. And I think two parting thoughts. What I get very excited about is this future state where the next great Nike is community-founded, community-led, and community-owned. So there's very much a distributed ownership where like hundreds of thousands of people are on the cap table versus whatever, 20. And then in the nearer term, like very much my belief on brand building or the future of brand building is two-part. It's co-creation. So empowering these people that we're talking about, the loyal fans to come upstream and and help you kind of influence and shape the future of the brand tied to incentivization. So rather than me as a fan or community member just pressing like to show kind of my loyalty on on Instagram, like how am I getting an inside look, contributing in a way that that's more valuable, but then directly being incentivized through brand coins that can be redeemed for something? Last question. So you have like you have alcohol, you have skincare, you have vodka, you have jewelry. You have mm-hmm. uh, smoking paraphernalia, like all these products use TYB. It sounds like you're about to get shoes soon. You mm-hmm. know, is there anything that doesn't work with this model? We've really focused on brands that do community well. I'm sure that there are some like categories that just like people aren't going to get all that excited about, right? And so this is a tool that's really focused on building more lifetime value and more engagement from those community members you have engaged. And so for instance, like a mattress company, I don't know. I don't know if this toolkit's exactly right for that, but anything that you're taking on a frequent basis and like it's a product that you grow with over time, like this is the right way to engage go forward. Totally. Awesome. I hope it was uh, helpful for you guys or fun. It was fun for me. Lots of fun. You provided amazing answers, actually, like really mind-blowing answers that I'm still mulling about. That yeah, was awesome. Not like PR-ish cool. answers. Yeah. Really appreciate yes. the genuine no honesty. No answers. Yeah. yeah, of course. Of course. Awesome, guys. Thanks for taking the time. Thank yeah, you. Let thank me know you. how I can uh, support. We'll, we'll do. do. 
Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one.